Let's take our Bibles and go to Colossians chapter number 1. <clears throat> Colossians chapter number 1. I um, <clears throat> have anticipated starting Colossians for some time and excited about being here already. I wish I could tell you that we're going to tackle the first 10 verses this morning and just really get into it, but uh, we're going to get through one verse this morning. Um, so we're going to do Colossians 1.1, 1, 1. and, uh, and uh, my hope is that uh, we'll be able to see Christ magnified on the pages of Scripture this morning as that we know He will be when the Word of God is preached, Christ is lifted up. So if you found your place there in Colossians chapter number 1, let's read verses 1 down through verse number 14 uh, of this first chapter this morning, and let's stand together in honor of the Word of God. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, will be pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transfer, transferred us unto the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we ask you to add your blessing now to what has been read. And Father, we know for a fact this morning that we need to hear from your word. That Lord, if we gather this morning to hear from the voice of a man only, or we've gathered in vain. Uh, but Lord, we believe that when the word of God is preached, the voice of God is heard. And Lord, we ask you this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive the word of God this morning, and Lord, thank you for your mercy to bring us here again another Sunday. It's in the precious name of Jesus we ask it, amen. Be seated there. Of course, we are um, excited about our ladies' ministry. They had uh, a retreat this weekend, and so many of our ladies are away on a retreat, and they're finishing up this morning, and so we want to think of them prayerfully as they wrap up their last session this morning and travel back home today, asking God to give them safety and appreciate all the work that has gone into that. <clears throat> so now we begin the book of Colossians. And my hope is that in the weeks to come we'll, we'll gain a little more ground than one verse at a time. 
Um, but I hope to be able to walk through these pages of Scripture and be an encouragement to you from the Word of God. Colossians was written to the church in Colossae somewhere around 61 to 63 A.D. Colossae would be located somewhere in western Turkey, what is today western Turkey. Paul is writing from prison. He's a prisoner in Rome. Uh, we learn that the timing here is that he's writing this book and he's writing Ephesians and Philemon and these other prison epistles. He's writing to this, this church at Colossae from prison, which I think takes on a unique insight when he says he is the apostle by the will of God, that he understands that even his imprisoning was of God, that he's not lost in this midst. And we saw that last week, how that God's providence is not caught by surprise, but that he has purpose in the midst of every struggle. Paul is writing to this church. Ephesians, if we look at the comparison between Ephesians and Colossians, if you laid these two books out side by side, you would see a lot of similarities. Um, Ephesians is going to start uh, in a lot the same way with uh, big words about who Christ is and what redemption is. And uh, all of the epistles are laid out with the idea of what we need to know, what is true, what is our doctrine, and then what we need to do in light of that and how we act in light of this. And so we never work for victory, we work from victory. Uh, we never work for completeness, we work from completeness. And that we understand what we've been given in Christ is why we can work this out in our daily life. And Colossians is going to lay it out the same way. One and two gives us the big picture of who Christ is, and three and four gives us now what do we do about it and how do we walk this out. Ephesians would talk to us about the body of Christ and Colossians talks to us about Christ being the head of the church and Philemon then would be the third epistle in this chain that then tells us how to live out Christ on a daily basis and how that we lay down what others have done against us and how that we forgive and we accept and we bring into a community. J. Vernon McGee tells us that Ephesians starts with the church and works its way up to Christ Whereas Colossians will start with Christ over all things and work its way down to being the head of the church. And he shows us the picture almost as if Ephesians was looking at this, Colossians backs up and gets a bigger picture of who Christ is and how that he is not only the firstborn from the dead, but he's the firstborn of creation. That he's the creator of all things. And so we see it in big picture of his dominion over all. And so as we walk through these pages here, Paul has never visited this church, and that's important for us to remember. Paul did not start this church in person, but probably because of his ministry and the spread of the gospel in the region, this church was planted, very likely Epaphroditus, uh, and uh, had come, and, or Epaphras, rather, I'm saying that name wrong, Epaphras had come heard Paul preach, and he had gone back there to Colossae and was ministering and planting this church now in Colossae. And he sends word to Paul of how things are going, and they hear this message. Chapter number two gives us the insight of Paul having not visited them, and he says in verse number one, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. He goes, we've never met in person. And yet Paul is writing to this little, and some would even argue by this point, insignificant town an insignificant city. It was not the metropolitan area uh, that other towns would be. It would not be the hub of interest, but kind of an out-of-the-way place. 
and he writes to this, this place, and the Bible says that he has a, a heart for them. There's a deep concern for them. The word here, struggle, that he gives is, is literally the word to agonize for. He said, I, I'm agonizing over you. I want, I want to see Christ formed in you. I want to see you being mature and built up in him. This largely Gentile church is there waiting. This largely letter is largely a preventative letter also. Um, it's a mild but firm correction to the church at Colossae. In contrast to Galatians and 1 Corinthians, Paul is not immediately jumping into his correction or even his addressing of the false teaching that has come. If you remember Galatians, he opens that book up by saying, I marvel that you're so soon removed. He gives no condemnation, commendation to them. He gives no word of encouragement. He said, hey, what's your problem? Why have you messed with this? And he said, as a matter of fact, if anybody preaches another gospel than what we've delivered to you, let him be accursed. And he comes off very strong at Galatians. Here in Colossae, he comes in with a grace-filled greeting. And he comes in with a heartfelt understanding of what the church believes and what they need to know. And I was talking with Pastor Caleb this morning, and he reminded me of the sandwich method. That's what the Apostle Paul is using in this, is he gives them an encouragement at the beginning, and he gives them some uh, loving encouragement at the end. And in the middle, he gives them the instruction they need, and he sandwiches it together. And so that's what we see unfolding and what we'll see unfolding. The main heresy appears to be a derivative or a precursor to uh, the full-blown heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is not uh, something we throw around, but it's still very prevalent in our day. The idea is the idea of higher knowledge, and the word Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis in the Greek, which literally means knowledge, and the idea is that there's a higher level of knowledge, and people will get up in this higher level of knowledge, and somehow or another, uh, there's through experience and through uh, certain rituals that we become uh, more aware and more uh, knowledgeable than other people, and only certain people can find the way into this path of knowledge. This is the kind of thing that's being taught to them, and they would adopt other forms of teaching to kind of support their thinking, but they were missing the whole of who Christ is. While it's not clearly spelled out, we can infer this from Paul's writing. Thomas Constable writes in reference to this, he said, the only information that is available to help us reconstruct the heresy threatening the church comes from the indirect allusions and the emphasis in this epistle. We conclude that the false teachers were not giving the person and work of Christ proper interpretation or emphasis. They were distorting and minimizing these doctrines. And so by what Paul is addressing, we can get clear that somehow or another they're distorting what, who and what Christ came to do. Uh, Everett Harrison, he writes this. He said, the most dangerous heresies the church is called on to combat from time to time are not those which openly and blatantly assail the person of our Lord, but rather those which subtly detract from his dignity while giving the appearance of honoring him. Now that's very important that you get the nuance of that. It, it, is, it is one thing for me to say, Jesus is Lord. And it's a very different thing to say Jesus became Lord. It's one word and it sounds like that we're saying the same thing but if we're not careful we miss the whole false teaching in that because this morning Jesus did not become Lord. He always has been Lord and he always will be Lord. 
That he is the, the son of God, he always has been God, and he always will be God. And here these were coming in, and they were just taking a little twist on the doctrines and pushing Jesus to the side, and he was no longer at the forefront. These false teachings uh, also contain a philosophical idea. Their emphasis was on a higher knowledge and cosmic order. These were also elements of Judaism and traditional pre presentation of that. And yet they, they, they never get the whole picture of any one thing. And so we're not like in Galatians just fighting Judaism, but we're addressing the fact that some people have brought pieces of Judaism in and they've brought pieces of this Gnosticism and this higher order in and they're distorting who Christ is. Gnosticism was a very wicked teaching. And to sum it up, let me give you just a brief summing in my own words here. The church at Colossae is being fed a lie that through philosophy and personal discipline, they could attain to a higher level of spiritual existence. Now, I wish I could say that doesn't exist anymore, but it does. Men find great personal pride in all kinds of different things that come about. That through our thinking and our ability, and, and everybody always has a better way. You know, and we, you know, we all these different diet routines and health routines and all of these, they tend to almost hold out the idea that if you follow ours, you'll not only get healthier, but you're going to think better and you'll be more elite like we are. Just an ad came across one of the social media accounts I have a few weeks ago and in the ad it was talking about, you know, you've always been told to eat fruits and vegetables, but guess what? You can't trust the fruits and vegetables at your grocery store. They're all messed up and I'm like, man, where can you eat anymore? Nothing. Well, guess what? He had the answer to it. It was a condensed little pill that would save me. And I will tell you this, if it would save me from eating Brussels sprouts, I would take it. But, um, but it, it, would, it was a little condensed pill, and this was the solution. And there was this, this means by coming into this elite setting. And, and you know, I was joking this morning, um, in the last several months, I've tried to do a few days a week, do an uh, intermediate fasting. But when I was a kid, it was just called skipping breakfast. And, uh, but we have all these new ways of saying things, and we think somehow or another we've risen to a new level of understanding. And this is exactly what is happening. This heresy was a mixture of Gnosticism, which brought, taught that the physical was all bad, and rather Judaism that held that man made rituals and self-discipline, and then a dash of Christ thrown in for good measure. Christ was not the way to God, but he was only a derivative of God. Gnosticism taught that matter and material world was so bad that God couldn't have created it. And so the way he created the world is he created a being who 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 created Christ, who then was far enough away from God that he could create the world. There was this crazy misunderstanding of how God had made everything from the beginning. This, this Christ was not the way to God, but a derivative of God. Christ was the focus, was not the focus, but rather a side note in the story. They looked to angels and rituals and self-denial and physical deprivation to bring them to a place of spiritual growth. The Jews thought themselves superior on ethical and nationalistic and moral grounds, uh, ethnicity and nationalistic and moral grounds. The heretics of Colossae boasted of intellectual superiority. And Paul writes this book to explain the fullness of the person and work of Christ. He wants us as believers to understand that Christ is not just a way, but the way to a relationship with the Father.
we will learn that we are in Christ, Christ is in us, that Christ is one with the Father and God and always has been God and always will be God. This is the message we pee. So this morning as we walk into Colossians, we're enrolling in the school of the supremacy of Christ. And we're going to see Christ lifted up on every page and see him magnified. And the whole end of it, I think, is Colossians 2, 6 and 7, where he calls us to this. Look what he says. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That we would be rooted in Christ, that we'd be established in the faith, that we'd be settled in who he is. We know and have been exposed to in times past the call to personality. Elite thinkers, even sometimes and many times, unfortunately, it comes into the church and we find it in different sects of doctrine, whether it be end times or spiritual warfare or different areas that only the elite find their way into this all knowledge. And Paul uses the word all in the book of Colossae 32 times. And over and over again, he says, all, 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 all wisdom, all power, all knowledge, all people. And he's calling all believers and saying that we have access to the information that we need to live the Christian life. It is not the people that are the, the spiritual leaders up here and everyone down here. Paul is rejecting the idea and he's putting it away and we'll see him do so even in his greeting this morning. Paul is not about elite thinking. He's not about being an elite person, but he understands that he is the chiefest of sinners and that the gospel is the answer for him and it's the answer for you. Some would have us to think that the only that they uh, only are the means to real spiritual thinking and uh, they're, they're the only way and it's through their highly specific understanding of knowledge that we arrive at this spiritual thinking. That this is only for an elite group of people Truth is only available for those who have a shared set of circumstances and experiences, and anyone who doesn't have that can't know truth. These enlightenments are an open, uh, open to the are not are the only open door to real knowledge. And Paul rejects the idea completely. But how does he reject it? Paul is not going to spend a great deal of time proving the false doctrines wrong. We're not going to find him taking and saying, well, here's why you don't pray to angels, and then he gives us, you know, 15 verses on why we don't pray to angels. He's not going to give us a message on why we don't give ourselves to uh, self-denial and self-depriving of our bodies, but he's going to give us a statement of, hey, that's not going to work real well, and then he moves on with the argument. He doesn't linger on the false teachings, and can you imagine this morning if somehow or another we tried to make a list of all the false teachings that ever have been? and are present today, and we put them on a list, and we just decided we were going to go through and disprove each of them, how long we would be just doing that. Going through and finding all the permeations of false teaching that have come up in the church through the years, but Paul doesn't have that direction for how to address it. Paul will not spend a great deal of time proving false doctrine wrong, but what he will do is preach Christ true. And when he lifts up Christ, it makes the difference. Imagine a glass sitting here on our table, just a regular glass that you would have at dinner. And I'd ask you the question, how do you get the air out of that glass without breaking it? We might look at it and think, oh, I don't know, you could use a vacuum and maybe it would bust or collapse. But one simple way of getting the air out of that glass is to fill it with sweet tea. 
Amen? And all the air is gone now because it's filled up with something else. And by the way, if you want to get the, 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 the heresy out of a church, fill it with Christ. Fill it up with Jesus Christ. If we want to get the false teaching out of our own heart, the lies that the devil would tell us, fill our hearts with Christ. We must fill our hearts and minds with the Lord Jesus Christ. John Calvin wrote, writes of this epistle. He said, we express it in one word. Colossians is distinguishing the true Christ from the fictitious one. And that's what we'll do in the book of Colossians as we see it. If we lift up Christ alone, then all that does not line up with Christ fails the test of orthodoxy because now we have a standard for who Christ is. Now we know what Christology is. That's the study of Christ, the doctrine of who Christ is. And we lift him up and have him high and lifted up and everything that assails against that doctrine that is not measuring up falls aside because we see Christ for who he is. So, verse one. Paul. Paul writes this text to us. Paul is the Greek form of the name Saul. Most of us know Saul's background. Most of us are familiar with how Saul was the persecutor of the church. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was one that had done this work for uh, many years of chasing down those that were preaching the way. And he's saying, I'm going to find them and I'm going to put them in prison and I'm going to execute them. You know the account of Paul going and taking, uh, the Bible says that they cast his, their garments at the feet of a man named Saul. They took up stones and they stoned Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church. And as Stephen lay bleeding out and crying out to the Lord Jesus, Paul stood there, or Saul stood there, giving assent to his death. Of course, you know the account that we move just a few pages further in Scripture, and Saul has letters from the high priest, and he's going to Damascus, and as he's on his way to Damascus, a light shines from heaven and strikes him down. He falls to the face. He's blinded by the light. He hears a voice from heaven, Saul, Saul, why persecuteth thou me? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecuted. Paul's like, I don't know who you are, but whoever you are, you're Lord. He acknowledged that. He said, I am Jesus. Why are you kicking against the pricks? And of course, we find Paul going then into Damascus, blinded. He hears the message and is baptized. His eye, the, eye, the scales fall off his eyes. And then just a few days later, he's proclaiming Jesus that once he destroyed. He's magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And you talk about a transformation. This all happens in just a short order where Paul goes from the one on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians to finding him holding small groups in Damascus and magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul then comes back to Jerusalem for a time. Can you just imagine with me just for a moment that the church came under persecution and one of our deacons was preaching publicly, and they drug him out and executed him in the street. And we knew who was in charge of doing it. He was the, the ringleader for it. And then he shows up on a Sunday a few months later and wants to come in and sit next to you and worship. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul had done. And now he shows up on a Sunday morning to worship with the church of Jerusalem. And like you would be and like I would be, everybody was a little nervous about that. 
Barnabas very wisely puts his arm around Paul and says, hey, let's go to Antioch for a little while. They go up to Antioch and God takes him through a time of teaching and instructing. And then we get to the account of Cornelius when the gospel came to Cornelius and Cornelius was a Gentile. And now the door is open wide to the Gentiles here in the gospel. And, and, and the Bible tells us that Barnabas was there. And it just makes this statement. And Barnabas went and got Paul, basically. It's like Barnabas like, I know the guy for this job. I'll be right back. And he runs to Antioch, gets Paul, brings him back. And then they send on a missionary journey. And Paul goes and the rest is what we know to be history. As he goes with this ministry to the Gentiles. The gospel is spreading. Now just as an FYI here, God did not change Saul's name to Paul. Paul is the uh, Greek form of the word Saul. And I think often we get that confused because we see the name transition. Uh, God changed Abram's name to Abraham and Jacob's name to Israel. And we see that happen in Sarai to Sarah. And we see those changes happening. But in this account, that's not what happened. We just see Paul using the Greek version of his name in his writings as we go forward. Because he had a ministry to the Gentiles. And so here he goes, Paul. Now, it's interesting to me that we see this expounded story, and this is the beginning of where we go, and what is the contrast between what we know to be true about Paul and the next line we have in the text, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, that's a miracle right there. Paul, the persecutor of the church, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now he is the sent one. He's the one being sent, not of his own commission. Paul would not one day wake up and say, you know, I think I'll go do this. No, God called him. God has sent him to do this work. He is the apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul gets out in front of the whole thing, and he says, this is who I serve, and this is where my loyalties lie. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. His, he is, I am his, he is mine, and I am striking my colors with Christ Jesus. Then he says, by the will of God. We mentioned this earlier. Paul writes this while in prison, yet he sees his calling and circumstances of God's will. He understood that God had called him to be an apostle, a sent one. And Paul the apostle, by the will of God, is going with the gospel to this lost world and preaching to people. And even these people he's writing this letter to who he had never seen. Paul is not a self-made man. Paul was not one that had put on airs and had built himself up. As a matter of fact, Paul understood who he was before Christ and who he was now. And what did he say about himself? He said, yes, I was, I was of the Jews, uh, born of the tribe of Benjamin, of the, uh, uh, circumcised the eighth day of the, house, of, of the tribe of Israel. And he said, of the tribe of Benjamin, rather. And he said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Uh, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. And he went through all of these things that were his pedigree of how awesome a man he was and how intellectual he was, but when he comes face to face with the doctrine of Christ, he doesn't exalt himself and say, hey, and if you want to find out all there is to know about Christ, you need to learn what I know. No, he says, I count all those things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. All of that is wasted. All of that is nothing because I want to win Christ. And he puts it all aside and he says, Christ is all. Paul is not self-made. He is not self-determined. He is God-called by the will of God, God-sent. And we are all this morning debtors and beggars that through Christ are now made citizens and fellow heirs. And so then we come to the last little phrase of our verse this morning. 
and Timothy, our brother. Timothy, our brother. So Paul gives dual authorship to this book. Now, if you had asked me who wrote the book of Colossae, I would have said Paul wrote it. How many of you would have been there too? You would have just said Paul wrote it, all right? You wouldn't have, you, how many, you, the rest of you are like, no, we knew, we knew Timothy wrote it too. Yeah, you're like, okay, all right. You're elitist, I guess, right? Uh, the fact is, I, I, if you'd asked me, I would have said Paul wrote it. And yet Paul very clearly says here, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints. Paul and Timothy are writing this together. Paul gives dual authorship of the birth. It comes with one mind and one voice, and we believe and know to be that it is inspired by God, that the very words we have were given to us by God, and we can know this is the word of God. And he says, Timothy, our brother. Now, this is not out of the norm for Paul to open a letter this way. Romans, Ephesians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus are the only epistles that Paul says, I wrote it, Paul, by himself. He opens the letter by just saying Paul. But then when we get to 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians and Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Philemon, he includes someone else that's with him. And often he's saying, Timothy, our brother, uh, Sosthenes writes with him, and he calls these different men, and he calls them by name. And I, I think it's important to understand here that as Paul, yes, is writing this word, he is not the originator of the message. But God is the originator of the message. Paul writes under a heavy hand, and the Bible tells us that he spake as he was moved, describing the Old Testament writers. And here Paul, again, being blown along by the Holy Spirit of God, he pens these words and he includes the name Timothy. So it's not, he's not the originator of the message, and Paul was not the source of the authority of the message. But I think there's a statement here in this that Paul and Timothy, our brother, is Paul was not alone in his affirmation of these truths. Paul was saying, Timothy stands with me too. Timothy writes with me too. Often when I maybe jot a note or a card to someone in the church and I write the card and, and I send many of you birthday cards and, and when, I, when I do that, I'll, I'll send a card and I'll sign it, Mike and Susie. Susie never penned any of those words, but I still would credit her with that because I'm saying she stands with me in this. And we say amen to this together. And and she likewise, when she sends a note, she might sign it, Susie and Mike, and we're saying we stand together in this. And I think the same kind of thing with maybe a little more weight, Paul is saying, and Timothy says this too. Timothy's standing with me. You know, I'm saying this morning, I believe truth is worth standing alone for. If need be, let's stand alone. But I'm so thankful that we don't always have to stand alone. That we don't stand in isolation by ourselves in the face of this world. Now, I would say that the culture we live in today has us feeling like we're standing alone. But let me remind you, our brother Timothy. Our brother Timothy is standing there too. And he's saying amen to what you're writing, Paul. And he's for what's going on. And Paul understood that we must stand for truth if necessary alone. Yet there is great safety and encouragement in standing together in truth. That we stand on the same common ground, one with another. Paul was not setting himself up as the guru who passed down orders to the simple-minded followers who just didn't get it. But he was saying Timothy also says this, and he's our brother. Our brother is speaking this. 
He's demonstrating the power of the gospel that regardless of our role that we hold in the church. Now, the roles are important. Paul held the the office of an apostle, and that authority was not anything to, to, to be scoffed at. And yet Paul also understood that even as an apostle, he was also a brother in Christ. That his standing was no greater than Timothy's, and that he didn't have a higher access to God than you and I do. And this morning, there's no higher access for the pastor or the deacon or a trustee. There's no higher access for anybody here because we are Shelby Bible Church. We are the church of Christ, and we all come to the cross the same way, and the ground is always level at the foot of the cross. There's no elites here. And we stand before him in need of that. Paul is not setting himself up as this guru. Rather, he is demonstrating the power of the gospel that regardless of our roles, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Only in Christ do we find our source, our purpose, our power, our message, and that is not for a few elite who have arrived at this great truth by disciplining the body and disciplining the mind, but to everyone who has been made a new creature in Christ, we have access to this power and to this message and to this purpose and this source of strength. And Paul says, here's what I want to do. I want to see you all be mature in Christ. I want you to see you all be built up in Christ. And so whether this morning you were just a young teenager here this morning or you're a senior saint who's been walking with Christ all these years, in Christ we all come the same way. And in in Christ we are transformed by his amazing grace. There's no other way in. It's not through disciplining your body and coming aware of something that you've never become before but it's coming in humble faith to the Savior and letting Christ be all in all. I want to read for you how Paul concludes this thought, but before I do, let me ask you to prepare your communion cups this morning as we prepare to partake together. Just so the PA booth will know, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians, rather, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, and we're going to read there through verse number 15. And as you prepare the elements there in your hands, let's be reminded of what these elements tell us. What do they remind us of? They remind us of the fact that there is only one way in. And everyone here comes in the same way. Through the broken body which the blood represents and the shed blood which the cup represents. That we come in understanding that we were guilty, we were sinful, unholy, And yet a loving Savior took our sins and died in our place. Look what Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and with uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside How? Nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It is through Christ we come. This nailing to the cross. You're guilty of a crime in Rome. 
they would take a handwriting of your crimes and list them. And whatever means you were to be executed by, they would nail it to your cross. They would nail it to a post as a public notice. This is why he's dying. And over our cell door, it read, guilty of high treason against a holy God. And he took our charges and nailed it to his cross. He paid our price. You know where that puts us all? On the same level. All have access by grace, through faith, into Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, don't forget it. Remember, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. And the message of Colossians begins, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And so our hope as we walk through the next several months together that on every page and in every verse, we'll see Christ magnified. See him lifted up over and over and over again. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the work you're doing in us and through us already. Father, I pray that you will take the song we're about to sing and, Lord, the message of it and drive the message of the sermon home even deeper. Thank you for every part of what today is represented. We'll just give you the glory and the praise for what you're doing in us. Let Christ be lifted up. It's in his precious name we ask. Amen. Let's stand together if we could.